Um, as we consider uh, today being ascent, uh, the Sunday after Ascension, um, the 40 days after Easter, it is a life-changing narrative. And I want you to think about how deeply narratives shape us. We all live according to narratives. So when you're growing up uh, with your, your family and the ideologies and values of your family, those are narratives that form you. The culture you grow up in, um, there's cultural conversations and narratives that form you. Um, your political leanings, there are political narratives that are formative in your life. Uh, socioeconomics or uh, or uh, even um, just uh, sociological kind of factors in whatever city or village you live in. They're, they're formative. When you think about um, artists in uh, music and literature and film uh, these, and radio and podcasting, that when you're wanting to convey your values, when you're wanting to convey your ide- ideologies, you have these powerful narratives and, and, and they form all of us. And if you've ever, um, you know, followed along with either literature or film or television where there's, a, there's an overarching story or narrative that's being told and then it ends in a cliffhanger, gives you that to-be-continued moment, that is very exciting. There's this sense of wonder, you know? You're like, oh my goodness, Frodo seems to be enjoying this ring a lot every time he puts it on. Where's this narrative going? You know, what? Frankenstein's monster wants a wife? And Victor said, yeah, he'd do it? Where is this narrative going? Raymond Holt has been demoted to traffic patrol. Where is this narrative going? It's exciting. It's a sense of wonder when, you know, to be continued as a storytelling device is exciting. But when to be continued is the narrative of your life, it's not as exciting. It is quite often disconcerting. Right now in this time, in these difficult days, as we navigate the slow, safe, responsible reopening of our province and you look around the world to try and get a sense of uh, what has happened in other countries that are doing the same, have done the same, feels quite a bit like to be continued. Um, There is not a certainty there, but there's an uncertainty that we're all living with. The future is full of uncertainty, but the uncertainty that you observe with your eyes will not drain your joy when this gospel is ringing in your ears. And so today's text is from Acts chapter 1. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. And Acts comes right after the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke ends in to be continued. And Acts picks up where, where it comes from. Because actually Luke and Acts are one book. They're both written by the same author. They're what you call a literary bifid. A volume 1 and Volume 2. The only reason, actually, that they, they appear as two separate books is because in the ancient world, when this was being written, there was no codex. You were using scrolls, and scrolls could only get so big. So when Luke finished his Gospel of Luke, centering around the ministry of Christ, he starts the book of Acts, centering around the work of the Spirit of Christ as the Holy Spirit comes. So it's, it's Volume 1 and Volume 2. And that's why when I start this uh, book in Chapter 1, it's going to sound a little bit like previously on the Ascension, and that is intentional. And so this Ascension we're about to read about, it took place 40 days after Easter. And so this past Thursday was 40 days after Easter. This is the Sunday uh, after the Ascension. And so throughout church history, the church has always stopped to reflect on the implications. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, 
until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way to you as you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. Now, this is a lot to take in. A resurrected Jesus, a glorified body, a human body after his resurrection, and then this this ascension where he's taken out of their sight and leaves the realm of our time and space and goes into the realm of God. This is a lot to take in. And so before we celebrate the goodness of the ascension, I want to just take a few minutes to talk to you about why it's reasonable to believe in the resurrection and the ascension. For some of you, this is a review. You've heard me talk about these things many times. Others of you, you've joined us this morning. This is completely new. You've never heard it. And even others of you I've had conversations with, you grapple with this. You're kind of in that place where you're saying, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is a lot to take in. So let's just take a few minutes and think about this. You see, if Christian faith was founded on the missing body of Jesus, I mean, that would be one thing, right? Conspiracy theories to the sky as to the missing body of Jesus. But our faith is not based on the missing body of Jesus. Our faith is based on hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected body, the living Jesus. And so it's a historical truth claim. So let's just take a couple minutes and think about this. There's a man named Lee Strobel. He has a uh, degree in uh, law studies from Yale. And he's an investigative journalist. And he was an atheist and he spent his entire life uh, centering his energies on fact checking. And as an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and then he was the senior editor of the Chicago Tribune, he spent his life dedicated to fact checking. And then this terrible, unthinkable thing happened. His wife came to faith in Jesus Christ and became a Christian. So what Lee did was he took all of his (laughs) fact finding academic strength and prowess, and he directed it toward disproving verse number three. Verse three that we read says that Jesus provided many convincing proofs that he was alive. And Lee Strobel said, I'm going to dedicate all my energy to helping my poor wife uh, to see that there are not convincing proofs that Jesus was alive. And what ended up happening, of course, as Lee 
through that process, came to faith, an intelligent man, like many other intelligent people who came to faith in Christ, what he discovered is that the literary construction of the New Testament does not shy away from fact-checking. It invites it. And so a couple of quick examples would be that on the way to the cross, as Jesus faints, a man named Simon picks up the cross and carries it for Jesus. Simon from Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that's a lot of detail, and you don't find ancient literature giving that kind of detail when, when poetry or mythology is being written. We write fiction that way today. We'll give elaborate backstories in fiction today, but ancient historical literary scholarship all agrees that's not how literature was written uh, when it was in the genre of poetry in the genre of mythology. It was written that way, listing name after name as historical footnotes uh, inviting the fact-checking, saying this is an eyewitness account. That's a, just a s- small example of how the, these, uh, these New Testament uh, letters uh, were written and given to us. He, Jesus was then buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who was a Sadducee who was on the council, on the high council. Now, um, again, this great detail that's given, the location of Jesus's uh, burial was public. Everybody knew. It wasn't some secret. It wasn't some, uh, you know, backwoods burial that was incognito. Everybody knew where, where he was buried. And of course, the empty tomb, history agrees, was empty, right? Tacitus and Flavius, these Roman historians, write about uh, the empty tomb. And of course, saying that the, the disciples stole the body. And everybody said the disciples stole the body. And the reason they're all saying that is because the tomb was empty. But here's the thing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Greeks and Romans and Jews are following Jesus Christ. Why would thousands and thousands and thousands of Romans convert to Christianity under Nero when they're going to be persecuted, suffer, and a lot of them, it costs them their life? Why would you do that for a hoax? It just is not reasonable that this would happen. In the Greco-Roman worldview, the whole uh, their belief of the afterlife was that the goal was to escape the material. That was the whole goal. You don't want to be in this body. This body is bad and it's frail and you want to leave it and become spiritual. And this text that we just read explicitly says that the resurrected Jesus was in a body. So if you were concocting hoaxes, if you were concocting some sort of a story to stick it to Rome politically and gain a following, this is not how you would write it because this was not attractive to anybody. On top of that, we've got the witnesses, first witnesses being women. And of course, as we know, women in the first century were not given any dignity. Their testimony was not valid in court. And all four gospel writers say it was women. We're sticking to the story. They write it down. So I say all this for those of you who may be hearing that for the first time to say When you look back on the first century and you find thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people converting to Christianity, it was not because they they believed some hoax or a legend. It's not because the Greco-Romans were unintelligent. They were an intelligent people. It's because they saw what they believed in what hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw, which was for the period of 40 days between Easter and Ascension Thursday, Jesus revealed himself as the resurrected Christ and those eyewitnesses saw it. And so really what should have happened is that Christianity 
if it were a myth, it should have been laughed out of Rome by everybody. But it wasn't laughed out of Rome. It exploded greatly through Rome. And I think those are reasonable things for us to consider. If you'd like to talk about that more deeply, contact me. I'd love to have a, a call with you and we can discuss, discuss these things. But suffice it to say, it's reasonable to believe in the historical uh, proofs of Christianity. And so I want to look this morning at three things in the, with the remainder of our time about how Christ's ascension has personal significance for us. It enabled Jesus to continue his ministry through us. And finally, the eternal implications of the ascension, they re-envision us. They re-envision how we live our day to day. So firstly, the personal significance for us, you know, it creates hope. There's an image here in this text that we read conjuring uh, a king uh, ascending to power in a great processional. The ancient world had these um, royal ceremonies that everybody would have been familiar with. And so the way that this is worded about Jesus ascending, it's not just about the direction, you know, that he went up. It's about this ascension to power. Uh, when you look at verse nine, the, the word up in the Greek it is the word uh, epiero, which, which is not just talking about a direction. It's about being exalted. And this is what it's wanting us to consider, that he's, he's ascending to power. And that as he does, the Lord of creation has this limitless scope of authority. And so the implications of this are extremely personal because Jesus loves us, he prays for us, he guides us. As we worship him and we pray to him and we teach our children to worship him and pray to him, we receive strength from him, peace from him, his perfect grace uh, strengthens us in our weakness. A couple of weeks ago, Peter Vlar uh, was sharing about how when he goes to court, he has to be clothed properly. Now, if you know Peter, Peter has a great sense of fashion and style. He, uh, uh, you know, he just appreciates, um, he, he appreciates fashion. So Peter is quite capable of going out and purchasing a suit that's going to look great on him and a shirt and a tie and dressing himself really well and going into a courtroom dressed in a way that any of us would say, well done, Peter. You know, that's an, that's an excellent uh, suit and tie. I love the combination. Any of us would look at that. He'd get thrown out of court. He'd get thrown out because he can't dress himself however he chooses. He's got to be clothed in the appropriate robes for the courts of Canada. And I, you know, as he shared that, it's, a, it's a, a, I think, a great image and picture of what the ascension means for us in a personal way. We who trust in Jesus Christ are clothed in Christ as we stand before the heavenly judge. None of us can stand on there on our own merits and say, I've clothed myself with my good deeds and my good works because we're all going to fall short. The scriptures are continually um, clear on that. And so the ascension guarantees that we can know we are forgiven and accepted and loved as adopted children of God. You know, in God, there is no darkness. And if it wasn't for the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, we would all still be guilty of our, of our darkness. Think for a moment how in the monotony, the frustration, and the uncertainty of this pandemic, how it has exposed your heart's darkness. Think about how in various ways, whether it's tensions, flare-ups, frustrations in your marriage, as you're 24-7 around each other, whether it's flare-ups and frustrations with your children or your siblings, frustrations with uh, strained relationships where there's drama as a result of not being able to get together the way we were before, tensions and frustrations relationally at work, 
Now you think about all of these things. Consider, you know, um, the, the, the challenges, that, uh, the things that have risen in our hearts as, as our province has tried to slowly and responsibly reopen and all the visceral reactions that kind of come as the, in, you know, infringements on our sense of freedom and autonomy. Think about all that. Think about all of that darkness. We, we are willing to sacrifice the needs of others on the altar of our personal benefit far more than we're willing to admit. And thankfully, because of the ascension of Jesus Christ, being clothed in him, he is our advocate. And in the throne room of heaven, he is answering every accusation against our darkness. He is answering every accusation against our sinful thoughts, our sinful words, our sinful deeds. And he is saying, I have paid the price. It is finished. And the verdict is not guilty. They are with me. They're clothed with me. Jesus descended into the the clutches of death to redeem us from guilt and sin. And then he ascended into the realm of heaven so that by the Holy Spirit, he would increasingly unravel our hearts from the grip of sin. And so it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how foolish or sinful or dark your heart is, God looks at you and united to Christ, he sees beauty because he sees the one who ascended. He sees you clothed in the one who ascended, his beloved son. And now because of that, the good news is our judge is our justifier. That's the personal, powerful implications of this ascension. Let's move on to the second thing. The ascension has enabled Jesus to continue his ministry through us. You know, we become witnesses. If you look at verse 4, it says, don't go until I go. That's what Jesus says. Now, what could possibly be so important that he would tell his followers, don't go and share the gospel until this happens? What could possibly be so important? It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is us being uh, filled with his presence, uh, the presence of God. You know, an end is coming to Jesus' earthly ministry. And so he's going to empower the church with the Spirit and continue his earthly ministry. And he's going to do it by his heavenly ministry through the Holy Spirit. When you look at verse 5, the Son of God leaves, the Spirit of God comes. And this is not the first time the Spirit of God has come. This is not our introduction to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving all through the Old Testament, but now he's moving in a new way. All through the Old Testament, you find the Holy Spirit coming on certain people. And now we find in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is indwelling all of God's people. It's new and powerful, and it's going to cause a global expansion of the goodness of God's grace for everybody. And so I want you to remember that there's not a shift happening where, you know, the centrality of, of, of Christ moves aside and the centrality of the church begins. Or the centrality of Christ's power and salvation moves aside and now the weight of salvation is on the church. That's not what's happening. Jesus isn't passing the baton of responsibility. Jesus remains the one who is able to accomplish salvation. He's not burdening us to bring salvation to Kitchener-Waterloo. He is empowering us so that through us, he continues to do his saving work in Kitchener-Waterloo. And he does it. He does it through his ordinary and flawed church because we share his extraordinary flawless grace, flawless gospel, the flawless Jesus. And so he continues what he began. When you look at verse eight, it says that the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be witnesses. What does that mean and what does it look like? Last year, we had Michael Changer with us, a church planner who's uh, moved to Halifax. And Michael preached this text and he called it the fleshy witness. 
right? What does it mean to become a witness? He called it fleshy, meaning part of it is the articulation of the gospel, the giving a defense, sharing why we have our hope in Christ, talking about Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, being a witness of that. But then there's another part of it that's fleshy. It's practical. It's making the phone call and sending the text. It's loving and caring. It's getting involved. It's as we were um, uh, talking about ways that we can be caring and loving uh, in our in our city in this difficult time with our colleagues at work. You know, as I have had conversations with, with many of you, you've had opportunities to do that. That the, the witness is fleshy. You know, hey, I'm here for you. Let's go for a, let's go for a walk six feet apart and let's talk. Let's have a chat. Loving and caring for people. The 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 global expansion of Christianity in the first century, it wasn't done by this team of eloquent preachers. It was done by spirit filled witnesses. They had rest in a world that was at unrest. They gave a defense for their hope in a world that was clamoring for hope. They cared for the poor. They thought about the outcast. It was a fleshy witness. And when you think about that, that should ring strong for us because we have rest right now in this world of unrest. We have hope right now in the world that's clamoring for hope. God has always used the simple lips of the church and he'll use the simple lips of this church. As we consider the third thing, that this ascension it has implications that re-envision us. They re-envision us to live in this world day to day in light of eternity. In verse 6, the, the disciples say, At this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And this is a very honest and relatable question because the disciples, just like us, they fixate on how God is going to solve the immediate problem. But they they don't have a full understanding of that God came in Jesus Christ to deal with the ultimate problem. That ultimate problem, of course, being the finality of death. And when we relate to all of our immediate problems with the rest that God has already solved our ultimate problem, that changes how we relate to the day-to-day. And so whether right now your immediate problem is your vocation, the uncertainty of the future, what work is going to look like, whether your immediate problem is an educational challenge, you don't know what your fall semester is going to be, things are up in the air, your living arrangements are on pause because of that, whether the uncertainty of your future you know, is health concerns, ongoing health frustrations, all of these things, these are immediate problems, but you are going to relate to them differently when you remember God has dealt with your ultimate problem definitively. Your joy will not be swallowed up by what you see with your eyes with this gospel ringing in your ears. And when you look at verse 11, interesting statement is made. The angels appear and they say to the disciples, why are you standing around? (coughs) Why are you looking up into heaven? I think about this in a literal sense. They're literally standing there. They're literally looking just like you and I would be. If we saw a resurrected Jesus leave our sight, we would be literally standing there. But also, I think we have to think about why are you standing there in a missional sense? Because what they go on to say, of course, is that the same Jesus who left this way is going to return. And so as we think about what it means to, to not stand around in a missional sense, we recognize that 
the gospel, the goodness of God's grace, the scandalous reality of our justification and being united to Christ and all of what that means, it means that we don't sit around waiting for restoration. Some of you have come, like me, have come out of uh, uh, church backgrounds that were not healthy or good. They exhausted you in many ways, hurt you in many ways. And when you first come to the gospel, your, your, your very understandable reaction is to want to sit around and do nothing and say, just stick a gospel IV in me. Tell me I'm justified. Tell me my sins are forgiven. Stick a fork in me, I'm done. And that's all I want to do. You know, that is understandable as initially as we are needing God to heal us from perhaps the crushing burden of legalism. But that is not sitting around and, and just bathing in your justification and not being missional is not a picture of Orthodox Christianity, of what we see in the first century church. And so you, like me, we're all on the mend, and eventually we're going to get to this place where we are not uh, sitting around just basking in restoration in a spiritual sense. There's a fleshy witness where we actually see ourselves as ministers of reconciliation, ministers of, rec of restoration in a missional sense where we are actively reaching out beyond ourselves and beyond our nuclear family to care and love for our neighbors and for the city. And you know, as I've been talking with many of you on, uh, on the phone or, and on Zoom, uh, you've had great opportunities at work to share, the, to share the gospel in ways you never have before. And that's so good. And I, I encourage you to continue to do that. As Peter uh, said earlier when we were receiving the offering, we've taken our, our, that money for rent that Redeemer would be using for rent, and we are giving it to uh, the guest house where the refugees live so that they can stay there. Their fundraising efforts have, have stopped. They have a $7,000 a month burn rate. We want to make sure they're cared for. This week you'll, in your inbox, you're going to get a long laundry list of practical things that you can buy and then make arrangements to drop off at the porch safely at the refugee house so that they can have what they need. We want... We want our, uh, the reality of this restoration, the reality of the goodness of, of God in us to free us and liberate us so that we don't need all of our time. We can give it away. We don't need all of our energies surrounding ourselves. We can give it away. We don't need all of our money. We can give it away. In the midst of this difficult time, as we sat as an eldership and as a board and discussed these things, we said we don't, we don't want to circle the wagons in the pandemic and keep all of our resources just to make sure that we survive. We have a God who will flat out has already pr promised to provide and care for us and take care of us. And we want to look outside of ourselves and be a blessing and care, uh, care for this city. The ascension re-envisions you for the day to day. The reality of the resurrected Christ will re-envision you in the day to day. When you look at verse eight, it says that, we, the gospel power comes upon us to be witnesses. It's a state of being. Of course, we do you know, the work of witnessing. We do love and good works. And I've just been talking about ways that we do it. But it's flowing from something deeper. It's not just rolling our sleeves up and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, well, I'll try harder to be love, loving you know, this week, Redeemer. Uh, go do love, uh, loving acts of service. It's fundamentally from a place of being. We will be witnesses. The same grace that justified us is sanctifying us. The same grace that saved us from our sin is motivating and compelling the action. <clears throat> and perhaps you're listening to this and you're feeling, I don't know that I feel qualified to 
share the gospel, to give a defense for my faith. And I want to encourage you that being a witness is not reserved for persuasive orators who can say everything right. It is not that. If you have been amazed by God's grace, if you are a recipient of God's grace, if you are thankful for the scandal of God's grace, you're qualified. If you have a testimony because you are fundamentally at rest in the, in the midst of this day-to-day unrest because you know your lives are in the hands of, your life is in the hands of God, you're qualified. And perhaps you feel, uh, you know, nervous about sharing. You know, in the first century, what, the, what made them nervous was the risk of physical death. Today in the 21st century, the risk is social death. So I would encourage you to pray that God, by the Holy Spirit, would give you the boldness to push past the pride, push past the worry of how you might be received so that you can very humbly and confidently give uh, a hope, uh, give a defense for the gospel that you enjoy, that you rest in. And if you feel like you're not equipped, if you want to have further conversation about how you would tackle difficult conversations around defending your faith, then contact me and I would love to sit with you and help further equip you to be able to do that. But as we look at this ascension, we find Jesus ascending and sitting at the right hand of God like a king who is working absolutely everything out for our salvation. Verse 11 says that he is going to return in the same way that he left. This is an explicit uh, conversation, an explicit announcement about the return of the king. And I know when I was a kid growing up in church, my personal experience was that heaven, the new earth, it was not described in helpful ways. It was not described in exciting ways. It was described in uninteresting ways, lame ways. You know, I heard preachers take verses from the book of Revelation that are poetic and apocalyptic and then talk about them in a literal way. Texts like, 24 elders singing 24 hours a day around the throne and they'd describe heaven, you know, the eternal existence like just this 24 hours sing-along. And I thought to myself as a kid, I'm not sure I'm that interested in that. I actually think I like earth better than the way you're describing heaven. I know what it is to kind of sit there as a confused child and be like, you know, is, is heaven going to be exciting if I'm crying holy, holy, holy for all of eternity? And I'm just imagining myself singing in a bathrobe because we all know in heaven, people wear bathrobes because that's what I learned from the from the Easter plays. You know, that's what I that's how I understood it as a child. If you're a baby angel, you get diapers and a crossbow. If you're an adult angel, you get a bathrobe, and that's heaven. But what this text is giving us is no, absolutely, that is that is not heaven. We don't just sit around and sing something like the score of Halo for all of eternity. Oh, oh, that's not it. Look at the text. It says he's going to return. What does this teach us? This teaches us that the, the implications of the resurrection, the implications of eternal life is it's a round trip. It is a round trip. Jesus Christ is coming to restore all things. And when we look at the book of Genesis, we get a frame, for, we get a frame of reference for what God wanted at the beginning, what he, got, what he wanted and, and where we're headed. He did not command Adam and Eve to sing for 24 hours a day. He said, be fruitful and multiply, which is to cultivate and create a flourishing society of love and communities that reflect the goodness of God, the way that a still lake reflects, you know, the glorious sky and that the earth would reflect the goodness of God. That is where we're heading. That is what God intended. 
<coughs> you know, when Susan ran a program called Kid Zone in the city and in community centers of Kitchener-Waterloo, once a year she would take 90 kids away to camp. And when they were at camp, they would swim in what we called Lake D. Lake D was not a lake. It was a gross, small, algae-infested, petri dish pond. But we all swam in it. And you know, for a lot of those kids, they'd never been out of the city. So a lot of those kids had never swam in anything like that. And to them, they thought it was the greatest thing. Of course you think Lake D is the greatest thing. If you've never stood in, on the cliffs of the you know, Santorini and looked at the Aegean Sea, then of course Lake D is the best thing. This world, of course there's beauty in it, but it's Lake D compared to the world that we're going to be enjoying, compared to what the resurrection and the return of Christ means in a physical sense, as, as uh, all of the good things that we enjoy in this life are just a taste of what we will enjoy and enjoy in the restored earth forever. And all of the sorrowful things in this life will be eradicated forever. And so this gospel, it's not a lullaby that just lulls the church into inactivity. It's the smelling salts that wake us up to acts of love and service and ministry as those who are witnesses who share uh, the goodness of Jesus Christ. So yes, church, in this pandemic, the future is uncertain. There is lots of uncertainty and lots of unanswered questions. But the uncertainty you observe with your eyes will not drain the joy out of your heart with this gospel ringing in your ears. Amen.